Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the Aquarium. It's great to have all of you who are here in the auditorium. And I want to welcome all of you who are watching online. I would like to acknowledge our sponsors that make this series possible, the uh, Gazette newspapers, the Courtyard Marriott downtown, and uh, without them, we wouldn't be able to have this series. So if you would, those of you here who are here, if you will either turn your cell phones off or put them on vibrate and refrain from texting uh, or, or tweeting for the next hour, we would appreciate it. <clears throat> So tonight, it's a real pleasure to welcome Lee McIntyre. He's going to discuss his latest book, The Scientific Attitude, which I highly recommend. But he has 12 books in all. And he's also written his first novel, The Sin Eater, which just came out. And uh, it took him 14 years to write. He's working on his next one. He promises it won't take more than 13 years, right? <laughs> and, Post-Truth, post and another one that I think is, is quite a remarkable book is Respecting Truth, uh, <coughs> Willful Ignorance in the Internet Age, which was published in 2015. He is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and the History of Science at Boston University and a lecturer, lecturer in ethics at the Harvard Extension School. He. Uh, Taught philosophy at Colgate, Boston University, Tufts Experimental College, Simmons College, and, and at Harvard. He was the executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University and served as a policy advisor to the executive dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard. He's also an associate editor in the research department of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. This is a really important and timely topic. The subtitle is Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. It's a very important message, and it, he has delivered it more powerfully than anything else I've ever read. So please join me in welcoming Lee McIntyre. Thank you very much. I appreciate that warm introduction. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Linda, and, and everybody here at the Aquarium of the Pacific for, uh, for making me feel so welcome. It's such a, a beautiful facility. I got a little uh, tour ahead of time. Your, your education mission here is really uh, tremendous. So my, ti uh, my topic is the scientific attitude. And uh, as Jerry said, about a year ago, I published a book called Post-Truth in which I argued that we now live in a world where lying is rampant and accountability is often absent. Uh, in 2016, the Oxford Dictionaries defined post-truth as, quote, denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, end quote. In its most virulent form, this can lead to the political subordination of reality, which is how I defined post-truth, where ideology takes precedence over facts, and we're expected to tolerate ideas such as that uh, certain president's inauguration crowd was larger than Obama's, even though there's photographic evidence that says otherwise, that the murder rate is rising, even though FBI statistics say that it's falling, or that Hurricane Dorian was a threat to Alabama, even though NOAA and the U.S. National Weather Service say that it wasn't. 
That's the shocking reality of our present political situation. But that didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, as I argued in my earlier book, Post-Truth, one of the main roots can be found in 60 years of science denial, from the tobacco industry's 1950s public relations campaign against the link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer, to the intelligent design theorists' attacks on evolution by natural selection, to the current outrage of faux skepticism and misunderstanding that's led to public confusion over truth about climate change. Clearly, we need a better way to fight back, not only against this metastasis of post-truth, but also against the science denial from whence it came. In doing so, I asked the question, should we look to scientists for help? Not necessarily. Now, in saying that, I mean no disrespect. And I know that there are, in fact, even some scientists in the room. As a philosopher of science, I believe that science is wonderful and that scientists as a whole are exemplars of what it means to defend the idea that facts matter in the search for truth. It's just that in graduate school, scientists are taught to become expert researchers, but almost none are trained in effective public communication. Likewise, scientists are rarely trained in the logical or methodological roots of their disciplines and may, in some cases, subscribe to a view that philosophers called naive realism, which holds that science simply discovers the truth. When called on to defend their results, some scientists may therefore be tempted to present their findings as facts and then seem shocked when an audience of doubters don't believe them. But here's the thing. You don't convince someone who doesn't believe in evidence by presenting them with more evidence. You do it, if at all, by helping them to improve their reasoning, enter the philosophy of science. For the last hundred years, the philosophy of science has been engaged in a furious debate over what's distinctive about science. They spend a lot of time talking about method and trying to come up with some sort of logical criteria by which we can separate science from non-science to settle once and for all why scientific theories have a special claim to believability, which I think they do. But largely, we've failed. Even on its own terms, most philosophers of science now admit that this demarca demarcation debate probably can't be solved. As a consequence, philosophy really hasn't done much to contribute to the defense of science. And that's led some scientists to come to the conclusion that philosophy isn't re really very useful to them at all. You hear disparaging comments about, science, uh, about philosophy of science made by uh, Nobel Prize winners often, Sheldon Glashow and uh, um, Steven Weinberg. Uh, my favorite quotation uh, about this is from the Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman, who said, philosophy of science is about as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. Um, there's enough sting in that remark to make it hurt, uh, but perhaps I wonder, have we just been going about it in the wrong way? Science is currently under attack, and now is not the time for scientists to be rejecting help from their allies in the philosophy of science, or for scientists to sniff, well, everything's going well except for those pesky science deniers who just won't believe a word that we say. That's the problem. They won't listen. They're not believing what you say. And the blame for that, I think, rests at least in part with the way that scientists are communicating with them. 
For one thing, scientists are often too quick to get exasperated and say, this person isn't worth talking to, and then refuse to engage in debate when somebody questions their evidence. Now, perhaps it's understandable that someone who's devoted their entire life to the power of experiment and facts would grow impatient with people who would thoughtlessly question their data or even accuse them of lying or fraud or whatever lack of integrity you'd think of. Another part of the problem is that scientists' own conception of what they're doing occasionally gives aid and comfort to some of the most prevalent myths that are held by science deniers. Science deniers often believe that a scientist's job is to prove a result, that we have to be certain of a finding before we're justified in believing it, that anything less is just a theory, and we've all heard that. Science deniers use those kind of myths to shore up their conclusion that until the day comes when scientists can reach absolute certainty, any hypothesis is just as credible and worthy of belief as any other. Except that day will never come, and scientists know it. So why then do scientists sometimes lie when confronted with a room full of doubters and pretend that their results have been proven, that vaccinations carry no risks, that their model of climate change has been conclusively verified? The problem is that most scientists don't know how to admit such things and still offer a robust defense of science. But what if they did? What if the defense of science could be more honest and based on the idea that openness and uncertainty is a strength instead of a weakness of science? That of course we don't know everything, but that doesn't make it rational to question the well-corroborated findings of science. And it certainly doesn't make it rational to think that unless you can prove the scientific theory that anything goes, because there is such a thing as probability. Science is intrinsically fallible, as opposed to deductive logic where certainty can be reached based on the validity of its form. When one's dealing with an empirical subject, there's always the possibility that one's theory may be proven wrong by some future data. That's just how inductive reasoning works. Scientists always have to allow for the possibility that their conclusions will someday be overturned. In science, we're required to balance both the openness to new hypotheses and a re with a reflex to doubt any new idea until it's been thoroughly tested. But that's what allows us to learn from experience. Science never shuts the books. It's also why, no matter how good the evidence, science can never say that vaccines are 100% safe or that electrons are real or that smoking causes cancer. You remember the, the decades in which the American Tobacco Institute said the conclusive link between cigarette smokings and cancer has not been shown. They were right, but that's because the conclusive link between any two things can never be shown given the nature of statistics. Those of you who have studied philosophy already know about the problem of induction, which says that anytime you move from a pattern in an area that you do know and try to project it into some area that you haven't yet experienced, it may not work. For logical reasons, there's just no way that you can get science to offer deductive certainty. That problem has flummoxed the philosophy of science for the last two centuries, and despite many attempts, no one has ever found a way to resolve it. But that does not mean that science has no solid basis. Even if science is based on inductive reasoning and its claims can never be 100% proven, this does not mean that any belief is as good as any other. 
nor that there's no such thing as likelihood given the evidence. It's just that perhaps the basis for what's distinctive about science isn't rooted in logic or in its method, but instead in the attitude that scientists use to approach their explorations. Now, although that may not solve the problem of demarcation that philosophers have been breaking their brain on for the last hundred years, it does allow for one of the most powerful ways that we can defend the unique authority of science. It's sometimes held to be anathema to the philosophy of science to talk about values rather than facts, but that's precisely what I'm going to do next. Because I think that in the end, it's the norms and attitudes of science that make it special. I call my thesis here simply the scientific attitude, and it has two parts. First, scientists care about evidence. Second, scientists are open to using new evidence to change their beliefs. It's the second part that really matters, because that's what allows scientists to distinguish themselves from science deniers and pseudoscientists. With climate change deniers, anti-evolutionists, anti-vaxxers, their beliefs are not customarily based on evidence, but on ideology. If they use evidence at all, they do so only selectively, normally to support their beliefs rather than to test them. Instead of changing their minds based on new evidence, they cherry-pick evidence to try to back up what they already think is right. That is not what scientists do. Now, it's not that scientists are perfect or they never make mistakes, because they suffer from the same cognitive biases as the rest of us. And in individual cases, surely they prefer that their own theories are true. That's the route to grants and tenure and all the other wonderful things. But here's the thing. In science, we don't let them get away with just their word. Their colleagues check up on them. The scientific attitude is judged not just by how an individual scientist feels about his or her work or whether they think that they have virtuous attitudes, but rather on the basis of a shared ethos of their critical community of other scientists who do empirical testing uh, based on the practices of science like data sharing, peer review, replication. These are the means by which scientists keep one another honest even if they were honest in the first place. Like the rest of us, scientists face uncertainty. It's just that they've developed a system of checks and procedures to help them deal with doubt and uncertainty in a rational manner. In my new book, The Scientific Attitude, I explore one of my favorite examples of this, which is how Ignaz Semmelweis, who was a lowly assistant physician in Vienna in the 1840s, discovered the cause of childbed fever. Childbed fever, which is a potentially fatal infection in pregnant women, we now know is caused by germs, but germs weren't discovered until the 1850s. So Semmelweis was doing his work at the Vienna General Hospital, and pre where pregnant women were separated into two wards. In ward one, that was attended by medical students, there was a 29% mortality rate. Imagine that. Go deliver a baby. You know, it's safer to deliver your baby in the street on the way to the hospital than to go to Ward 1. But you might end up in Ward 2, where uh, that was attended by midwives, where the mortality rate was only 3%. Now, what's the difference? Well, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> Semmelweis tried various hypotheses. He tried the position of delivery, the physical layout of the ward, 
Um, he tried, as it turned out, every time a woman died in Ward 1, any time a woman died in either ward, a priest had to come in and say last rites and rang a little bell on the way. And Semmelweis hypothesized that maybe the bell was scaring people to death. I mean, I'm sure it did, right? <laughs> um, but he asked the priest, stop ringing the bell and come in a different way in Ward 1. Of course, the mortality rate didn't change. But he tried it, okay? Finally, he hit on a key difference. The medical students came to Ward 1 directly from performing autopsies. And back in those days, no one washed their hands because they didn't believe in germs. Semmelweis instituted a program of hand washing in chlorinated water, and of course the mortality rate fell because he hypothesized that childbed fever was due to the presence of putrid matter on the medical student's hands. Duh, of course. Uh, and he was largely correct, but nobody really knew why because, as I said, it took another decade to know why. But still, he had found the answer, so you would think, of course, we're going to institute chlorinated hand washing everywhere. That's not what happened. His ideas were resisted. He was fired, committed to an asylum, jailed, uh, jailed and beaten to death by his guards. He was actually beaten to death. He was beaten bloody and died of a infect blood infection not unlike childbed fever. Later, of course, he was vindicated, as you know, martyrs tend to be. Um, <laughs> Like so many other martyrs for science, his legacy lived on as a demonstration of the power of changing one's beliefs based on evidence, which is the very essence of the scientific attitude. I think that Semmelweis is one of the, the great demonstrators of what it means to have the scientific attitude. Compare this to the strategy embraced by pseudoscientists, who despite protestations of skepticism, they call themselves skeptics, are often quite gullible and embrace conspiracy theories for which they have no good evidence. Compare it to science deniers who profess to care about evidence, then cherry pick only what uh, suits their own preferred ideology. Talk to your favorite vaccine denier, and they'll probably make a claim that there's a governmental cover-up about the dangers of thimerosal, or that a single study, though long ago debunked and proven, in fact, to be fraudulent, shows that vaccines cause autism. That, that study, by the way, the Wakefield study, was not only found to be sloppy and retracted and he lost his medical license, it was shown to be fraudulent. He, he fudged the data. It's not that science deniers have never been exposed to good evidence. It's that they really don't have a good normative context for knowing how to reason on the basis of evidence. And then it occurred to me how to use all of this to fight back against science denial. This is when I got really excited about the scientific attitude because it didn't just tell you what was distinctive about science. It shows you how to use the scientific attitude to fight back and defend science against science deniers and pseudoscientists. If you look back at history, you realize that most human belief is based not on evidence, but on social identity. Even in the present day, people seem much more prone to change their minds based on interaction with someone they trust rather than data. As we know from the work of Daniel Kahneman and others, there are numerous cognitive biases that have been wired into the human brain for millennia. This makes it all the more remarkable that relatively recently in human history, people like Semmelweis and Galileo came along to champion the idea that evidence matters because it can be used to push us toward the discovery of truths that would be missed by our ideology or our orthodoxy, the things that we already thought we knew. 
Today, we think of that as wise and obvious. But for most of human history, our beliefs have been based on what others in our community thought, on authority, on our peer group, on what we ourselves wanted to be true. And indeed, for many people, that's still the way it works, which is why it shouldn't be surprising that there are so many science deniers in the world. There's been an enormous erosion of trust in recent years due to the exacerbation of cognitive bias by social media and by political partisanship that's undermined our willingness to believe in experts. Nonetheless, these days people seem flummoxed uh, in this, what I think of as this post-truth era, by a very simple question. Why aren't people convinced by facts that are right in front of their face? There were headlines in uh, uh, The Atlantic and The New Yorker uh, about this not that long ago. And I think the answer is not merely that people are irrational, though they may well be. It's that most people's beliefs aren't revisable by evidence because they weren't based on evidence in the first place. For many people, belief isn't about evidence, but the extent to which a belief fits in with something that they already care about. So ideology comes first and reality comes second. Some scientific beliefs threaten a person's identity and some don't. This is why people pick and choose. I call them cafeteria skeptics. They believe in chemotherapy, but they don't believe in vaccines. They'll drink pasteurized milk, but they won't touch GMOs. That, but that's a bastardization, uh, not only of the findings of science, but of the process by which justified beliefs are formed in the first place. Looked at in this way, you can more readily appreciate the enormity of our task because it means that there really are no magic words that you can say to a science denier to convince them. There is no definitive experiment. Their beliefs are based on what makes them feel part of their community and enjoy a sense of belonging, and that community may no longer include scientists. Even empirical beliefs can be tribal. At some level, people would rather believe a lie told by someone in their group than a truth by an outsider. When people say that climate change isn't real or the vaccines are dangerous or that the earth is flat, they're not just telling you about their beliefs, but about their values. They're telling you who they trust. Science denial undermines not just the findings of science, but the process by which well-justified beliefs are formed in the first place. But it's always been like this. And I want you to try to think of the, the historical perspective here. Science is really the exception. We think that science deniers are the weird ones, but really looked at from an historical perspective, it's science that's the newcomer. It's an awesome thing to have your mind changed by evidence. Humans haven't been on this planet that long, 100,000, 200,000 years. Relatively recently, we have discovered that evidence matters that we have the courage to say, I want to believe that X is true, but the evidence is telling me that X isn't true, therefore I won't believe it. But as I've said, cognitive bias is just as wired into scientists' brains as into anyone else's. So how do they overcome it? How do scientists do it? Through the scientific attitude. It's an amazing thing that in science we've developed a set of values that have helped us to overcome these very human tendencies. And perhaps this is what allows scientists to embrace a different identity than the layperson, the identity of the true skeptic. So what can be done by those of us who care about science? We have to teach science deniers, I think, not only a different set of facts, but a different set of values. 
We have to help them abandon the myth of certainty in science and explore the important role that evidence has in building warrant for well-justified empirical beliefs. When certainty is the standard, it's easy for science deniers to call themselves skeptics and pretend that they're justified in holding out for proof, and you've all spoken to them. Instead, I think we have to show them what true skepticism actually means. We have to show them that the scientific attitude is really the direct opposite of the mindset of post-truth, this idea of the political subordination of reality. If you think about science, they're not doing that. They're not subordinating truth uh, uh, to uh, politics. They're doing just the opposite. Now, what would that look like in practice? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Because in November 2018, I went to the Flat Earth Convention in Denver, Colorado. Now, I didn't go as a scientist, but as a philosopher, because I'm not a scientist. But I also knew that if I pulled a gyroscope out of my pocket, or I tried to rig up a Foucault's pendulum, they'd just laugh. <laughs> and I'd probably laugh right along with them. I also knew that if the Flat Earthers hadn't been convinced by evidence that it had been around for the last 2,300 years since Aristarchus, they probably weren't going to believe me either. So what I sought to do was to talk to them about their reasoning strategy. The Flat Earthers that I met professed, to believe, professed that their beliefs were based on evidence. A number of them were fundamentalist Christians, but their beliefs were not faith-based. Their beliefs they said were evidence-based, and, and I, I think that that's uh, what, they, what they believed. They talked constantly of doing their own experiments, yet virtually all of them were conspiracy theorists who believed that NASA had faked the moon landing, that Antarctica wasn't a continent but instead was spread out as a mountain range around the circumference of the Earth, that all government leaders were in on the attempt to cover up the truth of Flat Earth, uh, that there was a dome over the top, which prevents rocket travel to the moon, and that the rest of us had all been brainwashed into being globalists in school. Most of them believed in a host of other conspiracy theories, too. Now, I engaged them in a calm and respectful manner. The whole first day of the conference, I just kept my mouth shut and listened. Um, but I remained adamant in my contention that their beliefs were not only wrong, but irrationally conceived. Uh, so for the most part, <laughs> I let them talk, but on the second day, I presented myself as a philosopher of science. And I started to ask them some questions from the philosophy of science, the best of which was this, and this is not my question, this is due to a philosopher of science named Karl Popper. You know the show Columbo, right, way, way back. I, was, I just have one question. Here was the question. What evidence, I didn't ask them, what evidence do you have that your beliefs are true? I asked them, what evidence would it take to convince you that you were wrong? Because if you think about it, if they can't answer that, their beliefs are not based on evidence. So they were only too happy to show me their evidence or to question my evidence. But when I asked them, what is the thing in the world that if I could show it to you would change your mind, they couldn't answer it. A lot of flat earthers were uncomfortable with that question. It seemed like one they'd never heard before. At the end of one of the main scientific talks, I approached the speaker, just as he was getting off stage, and he'd made a big deal of the fact that although he had no university credentials, he was wearing a white lab coat. So fair game. I wanted to ask him a few questions. During his talk, he'd presented a photograph of the skyline of the city of Chicago from 60 miles out in Lake Michigan. 
The trouble was, at that distance, the curvature of the Earth should have made the top of the Sears Tower disappear. But there it was on the photograph that he had displayed. So he thought he had his proof. Now I pushed him on this. How do you know that photo isn't fake? And he said, I know the guy who took it. And I went out on Lake Michigan myself about a year later, and I saw the same thing, and I took a picture of it too. This is real. And by the way, he's right. It is, it is real. There is a picture of this, and it's not a faked picture. But there's an explanation. During his presentation, this scientist had suggested all sorts of conspiracy theories about how virtually all of the NASA space photos were faked, that none could be trusted. But he trusted this photo because he trusted the man who had taken it. I shared with him a quick calculation I'd done uh, during his talk based on numbers that he'd provided, showing that you really only had to go out 45 miles for the top of the Chicago, uh, the Chicago skyline to disappear. And he said that was right, but he'd gone out 46 miles. And the picture was from 60, so case closed. And he scoffed at my idea that the whole thing could be explained by something called the superior mirage effect. Superior mirage effect is this phenomena by which uh, light doesn't always travel in straight lines. If, you have, if you're looking at the horizon and you've got a cold surface of water and the air is warmer, you'll see uh, a, 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 an illusion, for instance, in this case of the city of Chicago, hovering above it. So what he had the picture of was not actually the Chicago skyline, but the superposition of the Chicago skyline up above the horizon, which is a real thing. Uh, and if you have never seen that, you've seen the inferior mirage effect, which is when you're driving on hot pavement, much hotter than the air, and it looks like there's water on the pavement. That's an illusion. The water's not really there, but it's the same inferior, superior. So I brought this up. Um, and he said, he laughed and he said, I dealt that with, my, uh, with that in my talk. It's made up. And I said, you didn't deal with it. You just said you didn't believe it. And he said, well, I don't. At that point, he started to get antsy because he had other fans that he wanted to greet. But I moved in for one last question. Why didn't you go out 100 miles? What? 100 miles, I said. If you'd gone out that far, not only the city of Chicago would have disappeared, but also the mirage. Takes 46 miles to get rid of the skyline. You go out 100, you get rid of the mirage of the skyline. He shook his head. We couldn't get the captain of the boat to go out that far. But now it was my turn to scoff. You devoted your entire life to this work, and you didn't go out an extra 50-some-odd miles. You had the definitive experiment within your reach, and you, you didn't do it. And he turned his head away, and he began to talk to someone else. Of necessity, it's going to be a slow process to talk to science deniers. Science denial didn't take hold overnight, and we can't vanquish it overnight either. But I'm convinced that the best way to do it is not to try ram, to ram evidence down somebody's throat, not to insult them, not to yell at them, but to teach them the values of science. And we do that best by trying to embody those values, by listening to science deniers, taking on their points one, on, uh, one by one, by engaging them rather than just walking away. I may not have convinced any of the people that I met at Flat Earth that day, though I trust that some of the others standing nearby overheard our conversation and it might have given them something to think about. But I wonder if maybe I did begin to build some trust just by showing up, because they had said at one point during one of the seminars when I was keeping my mouth quiet, do you notice that there's no physicists here to refute us? That's because they're cowards. They know they can't. And then the next day, well, 
Here I am. I'm not a physicist, but I'll do my best. At least I showed up. I took on the worst form of science denial that I could imagine, and I didn't let them get away with lazy thinking or lying unchallenged. I went to flat. Now, why did I do this? Why did I take it seriously rather than going to a climate change convention or anti-vax? I went to the Flat Earth Convention because I wanted to face science denial in its most elemental form. My working hypothesis was that all science deniers use basically the same reasoning strategy. Start with an ideology that you're committed to no matter what. Cherry pick evidence in its favor. Exploit uncertainty where you can. Try to discredit those who disagree with you and cast doubt on their work. Cite your own experts, even if they have no expertise. Claim that you're actually more scientific than the scientists. Throw in a little conspiracy theory, and you're done. Climate change, anti-vax, anti-evolution, flat earth, they all follow that exact same pattern. Which means that if you can figure out how to talk to one science denier, you can talk to any of them. And you don't have to be an expert in the science that you're talking about to present the evidence. You can talk to them about their reasoning strategy. That's what I'm working on next. Uh, this fall and spring, uh, I'm taking a series of road trips to talk to science deniers face to face. My most recent trip uh, was up to coal country in rural Pennsylvania. I went to Washington uh, County, uh, right over next to the West Virginia border, to talk to coal miners about climate change. And that's all in preparation for my next book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, which I'm working on now. That's it. Thank you, Lee. Great. I, so I, my favorite Richard Feynman quote along this line is, religion is a culture of faith, science is a culture of doubt. And as you point out, there's no greater feeling for a scientist than to prove another scientist wrong. Yeah, yeah they, they couldn't keep a conspiracy <laughs> if they wanted to. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they, they, it's too, too attractive. So. And when, uh, when I was working on my PhD, my advisor, Don Pritchard, he used to like to quote the Greek astronomer and philosopher Ptolemy. And Ptolemy said, the role of the scientist is to tell the most plausible story that saves the facts. And he used to say, if you have to tell a story with what you have, and you have to be willing to change that story as we get more facts. And I think that's important. Who has a question? You believe in a flat earth, Bob. <laughs> they walk among us. Yeah, Bertrand Russell had a saying about beware of people that are sure of themselves. Went a little bit better. You know, it's, it's <laughs> interesting, your, your tobacco argument which I'm sure we're all aware it's of. It's not my tobacco no, argument. No, it's, uh, it's Naomi Oreska's uh, in uh, Merchants no. of Doubt. The tobacco argument yeah. is the one that's still being used now with, with uh, climate deniers. You don't have to prove it. You just have to cast doubt. That's right. But the doubt timing of that problem. I never put into perspective was the 50s. Now, we come out of World War II with, with Zeller and, and Fermi and a young Feynman. Mm -hmm. Scientists are heroes. And with some whitewashed Germans, we go to the moon. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, this argument about uh, smoking, and everybody that smoked knew it was bad for them. My folks knew it was bad for them. But it hadn't been proven. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it was a, uh, you know, the same argument that's going on now, but yet we haven't had 
the scientific high-profile projects to counter that. There's a lot of science going on. Yeah. There's there's Pulitzer or there's a Nobel Prize winning science, but it's not done in the public purview. It's it, and so the argument goes on. We haven't been to the moon lately, or or something like that. And so we're we're kind of losing that energy that needs to be rebuilt. And Jerry's one of Jerry's thrusts here at the aquarium is not just the scientific thing, but the education of the yeah. scientific thing. And that's why people like you are so important. Oh, thank you. I I, I think thank you. I think that one thing that happens, this mic is now on, right? Yeah. Um, I think that one thing that happens is that um, if you look back at the 1950s, um, it's not that people understood science any better than, than they do now, it's just that they trusted it. They, they, it, it was heroic. And you look at the, the moon landing and you look at the atomic bomb and it looked like scientists could do things. Um, and it's a question why that trust has eroded to the point where it has. So Tom Nichols has a, a wonderful book called The Death of Expertise. And I think that just people have stopped trusting authority in many different ways, and science has gotten wrapped up in that. But one thing that's also happened is that scientists have not fought back. Or, or they fought back with facts, but as I said, if people don't believe in evidence, you're not going to convince them with evidence. And if you just write and stay home, and you don't engage, then there's, there's trouble. Um, I wrote a piece uh, um, this, last su uh, this summer in the uh, American Journal of Physics uh, titled Calling All Physicists to try to get physicists to come to the Flat Earth Convention and actually ta uh, talk about this. And, and uh, Flat Earth, I mean, I went, it was interesting, but my real concern is climate change because I wanted to figure out uh, a strategy where maybe the flat earthers aren't hurting anybody, but you know, I could sort of practice up the strategy. But the climate change deniers are hurting people, and they have the representatives in Congress. And I want to figure out what strategy to use there. So that's really the high stakes part of it. That's the, uh, the next piece of it that's coming up. Thanks, Lee. Uh, I wanted to ask you some, a couple of questions that are kind of interlinked about, about the social sciences. Okay. Because um, I know social scientists who really do have the scientific attitude, who are, yeah. uh, are aggressive about putting an idea out and then modifying their position based on new evidence that comes in. That's not, you know, uh, there are, I, I think we're, as we said earlier, there are some scientists who are, who have the scientific attitude and some sci scientists who don't. That's right. And in the same, I, what I'm, what I'm, uh, a positing is there are social scientists who do have the scientific attitude, but others right. who don't. Yeah. So will you comment on that? Yeah, so remember I used to work at a place called the Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And uh, so you know, I, I'm, I know, uh, my, I started out, my dissertation was on uh, topics in philosophy of social science. So I'm very interested in the idea of uh, a science of human behavior, you know, how, how to make the social sciences uh, actual actual sciences, and so um, that is, you know, that that's a topic that's, that's near and dear to me. But I but I do recognize that not all uh, social science scientists uh, have the scientific attitude. So the extent to which ideology um, 
infects the social sciences uh, is, is bad. And I, I made an argument in, my early, in an earlier book uh, called Dark Ages that the political ideology was today doing to social science what religious ideology had done to natural science during Galileo's time. So there are some topics in the social sciences that you cannot actually do good work on anymore because it's too politically charged. Either the money isn't there or you can't get the, the studies uh, peer reviewed. You just, you, you know, it, it won't go forward. And the, the real scandal is uh, that so much of the social science work comes out of ideological think tanks where, you know, you imagine that, uh, why can I name you five different studies which show that immigration is a net plus for the American economy and five which show that it's a net drag? You wouldn't tolerate that in physics. But that, that does happen in the social sciences, and it's because it's not, it's not to say that they're, they're fudging the data, it's to say that if you start out with what you want to show, you can find data to back it up. So debates about guns, about immigration, about just almost any politically charged thing that you can think of, you can find a social scientist to say what you want to say. And by the way, I think that that's why Congress, it doesn't ever seem to have this burning desire to see what the social scientists say before they pass a piece of legislation. Look at the death penalty. You know, there have been, been great studies on the death penalty. Politicians don't really pay attention to them because the reputation is, well, you can get studies to say whatever you want them to say. So I, I'm critical of the social sciences often, but, but I love the social sciences. I, I wish that the social sciences uh, had a better reputation, and I think that they can get them uh, through the scientific attitude. And in fact, one of my uh, ideas for the book, the reason I came to this, to write this book, is that for years I'd thought that what was wrong with the social sciences is that they didn't um, have the right methodology. And I now no longer think that. I think that they don't have the right attitude. And I say they, I don't mean all, because there is excellent, some excellent work being done in the social sciences. And I talk about some of it in my book. I talk about uh, uh, Sheena Iyengar's wonderful work on the paradox of choice. She did experimental work where economists had thought you couldn't do experiments, but she did. There's wonderful work being done in the social sciences, but just not enough of it. What about Steven Pinker and, and his latest writings about the need for facts and evidence? It, which, which book? I've forgotten the name of it. It just came out. In, Enlightenment Now, you mean? No, no, it was after that. I, ha I haven't read it, so I dare not comment. Okay. <laughs> we have one in the back, and then we'll back. back. Um, I wanted to thank you for the, the presentation that thank you brought today. It's very enlightening and quite challenging. I was thank thinking you. about the aquarium, and when I've been here, and you see the children, how open-minded they are, and now with the Pacific Vision, because by seeing things, I think it opens the door not to be so biased. Mm -hmm. And my background is pediatric nursing. I feel the hope that we have in having improvement in scientific attitude is going to be the children. Mm -hmm. So I want to know mm -hmm. um, whether or not you've looked into, explored, and looked at, because the young lady from Sweden that's 11 yeah, that brought it. forth the whole thing now to open people's minds about climate change, I feel that the young people are the people we need to reach from as young as possible 
to try to turn this whole thing around so they can see what the truth is. So have yeah. you looked into yourself exploring this or getting other people? Because yeah. I think that this is something that will kind of change this around because when people have their minds set, it's really hard to unset the mind unless they become open-minded. Thank you. Yeah, kids, it's a great question because kids tend to be the, the more open-minded. I mean, they, they can't have a belief that they've held for 30 years that they, they can't give it up. The, the, the interesting thing about kids is that they, they're, I've read some, some anecdotal accounts of the kids being the ones that convert their, their parents and others to the correct views on, on climate change. I mean, they, for instance, have more at stake, but you know, will we'll often go to school or come to the aquarium and they'll, they'll learn about it and then, and then help the, the adults learn uh, more. The thing that I wish were more prevalent for, for kids, the thing that I think would actually accelerate the trend that you're talking about for kids, um, is that if our science education for kids involved more thinking about how scientists think and not just present the results of science. The way I learned science, the way most adults learn science, so they remember, is that we were presented with all the wonderful discoveries and made to feel, aren't we lucky that we were born into the era in which all truth had been discovered? But every era feels that way, right? And they tell you this story of the history of science, which you know, starts as far back as you want to go, leads up to today. And now you know, they're geniuses, and they know everything. Kind of, and isn't science coming to an end soon? Um, and I wish what they would do more of is teach kids about scientific failure and all the wrong turns they took and how wonderful they were to uh, you know, study things like Semmelweis and, and what happened and why would people resist that? Because it's easy to look at that and think, well, they were just fools. Were they fools, the people who resisted him? Because without the microscope, without being understand what the germs were, without being able to see them, I mean, there were quotations people at the time said, well, show them to me and then I'll believe in them. Uh, so being able to put yourself in, in that sort of a mindset to think about how scientists actually think and the rigor with which they have to go through and the uncertainty and the failure and, and the, the work by which they come up with their findings, I think that would really help kids to, to not only appreciate science, but to grow up to be scientists. Yeah, hundred ways that he failed, right? Yeah. I have not discovered how to make a light bulb. I've discovered a thousand ways not to. Yeah. I would concur with Francis back there, but I want to add what I think is a good example of what can happen. I always think of a scientist as being quiet mm. and doing their research and not really speaking up, except for Jerry. But I think that this attitude you're talking about can be taught. Yes. And, I'm, and I'm thinking of in a university setting or whatever it is that, you know, people studying the sciences need to show that. My example of that is that all of the volunteers here at this aquarium, most of them do not have a scientific background when they arrive. Mm -hmm. However, they are taught to speak up and to tell people how it is. 
And they all are successful at doing that, even our family members who are children, talking to the adults, that's very powerful. So perhaps, I don't know who's going to develop this teaching program, but it seems it would be very helpful. What do you think? I, I, I agree. Uh, I, I, there, there are some programs that currently exist to do this sort of thing. Uh, I was on a panel one time with uh, the dean of the Alan Alda Center up at SUNY Stony Brook. Uh, his name's uh, uh, Howard Schneider, I think I remember. And they have a curriculum to teach scientists uh, how to uh, present their results to the public in a more effective manner. And I believe they also have a program to help journalists learn how to do a better job of presenting scientific results. Um, the, I mean, sci are scientists quiet? I went to the March uh, for Science in Boston. They sure weren't quiet. They were out of their lab altogether. But then the question, which was you know, very effective and, and wonderful to see, but the question is, um, what else? You know, wh where, where should all that energy be channeled? I, I, I really, I, I genuinely believe that it should be channeled with interaction with science deniers. That, you know, not just to stay in your lab and be right, but to confront people who are wrong uh, in public, face to face, not in a belligerent way, but in a, in a patient way. Um, I'll give you an example of when this really worked. Uh, the anti-vax crisis that you know, uh, uh, resulted in the measles outbreak this last year. Uh, what, one of the places where it was most uh, virulent was Clark County, Washington, just across the river from Portland, Oregon. So Governor Jay Inslee um, sent public health officials to Clark County to talk with the anti-vaxxers. And they didn't convince them all, but they convinced some of them. And there are first-person accounts. I remember one from the Washington Post uh, in particular, talk, where they had a quotation from a woman who had changed her mind on the spot after talking with one of these public health officials and said he was warm, he was patient, he took the time. He took two hours with the whiteboard showing me cell division, and now I understand. That's what changes people's minds. Patience, engagement, not yelling at them and calling them stupid. One-to-one -one contact. And, and we've got uh, so many scientists in this country who could do that sort of thing. And I think they've just been afraid to have confrontations with science deniers because if you think that you've got to go out there and have uh, an engagement with a science denier in which you've got to pretend that what you're doing has been proven and the science denier is going to find the one flaw and then you, know, then you, you feel ridiculous, you, you want to go home. But I'm trying to empower them to say, you don't have to apologize for uncertainty. You wear uncertainty as a badge of honor because uncertainty is what allows scientists to learn from evidence. If we knew everything, we wouldn't have to learn from any future evidence, but because uh, uh, we do, that's what leads to uncertainty. And that's great. That means that scientists, scientific knowledge grows. So don't go out there and be embarrassed by that. Uh, I, I want Part of the reason why I wrote this book was to get scientists more engaged in the fight against science denial, because we need them. Howard Schneider at, at Stony Brook, he used to work for Newsday, Long I the major okay. paper on Long Island. Uh, and you know, I think- He's a journalist, yeah. You're, he's a journalist, right. yes. And I, I knew him quite well when oh, wow. I was there, because he used Very to good. write bad articles. <laughs> 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 but you know, I he's think hear it's this. important, to, the, the scientific attitude isn't the domain 
of, the, of scientists, whether they're physical scientists, biological, or social scientists. A lot of people in the public I, that, that we know have scientific attitudes, I think, and as we, we've already observed. Right. I know scientists, geological scientists, oceanographers, that don't have the scientific attitude. Well, well that, that's a problem because I, I think that the scientific attitude, I think that if somebody doesn't have the scientific attitude, if they're not open to evidence changing their mind, they're not really a scientist. They're not, they're not, they're not really living up to the creed. Let's see, we got Jerry, one. we have we one here. One, Jerry? One here and then Dave. You got one there? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, speaking of your book, is it in the gift shop yes. now? Wow, yes, you I can buy it that. after the lecture. And, and he will be happy to sign a copy He'll for you. Okay. <laughs> That's a nice surprise. Hi. Uh, in regards to climate change, mm -hmm. in talking to the naysayers specifically with regarding to climate change, did you find that there was any motivation, um, a degree of uh, laziness or unwillingness to do something different? Specifically, did you find among naysayers regarding climate change, was it easier for them to deny the facts than to embrace personal lifestyle changes or mandated changes, such as having to bring your own bags to the grocery store or paying more for renewable energy, that type of thing? Is it easier to just say, I like the status quo, I don't want to do anything different, so the facts are wrong, don't bother me? It, it, it's interesting because I often wonder what, lead, what motivates people. In some cases, I think it is the idea that it's too inconvenient or I don't want to make the sacrifice. But that's often not what people say. Because suppose you didn't want to spend the money or you thought, you know what, I'm going to be dead by then. Or, or you know, I don't want that kind of government takeover uh, of the economy that would be needed to fight climate change. Suppose you believed any of those things. To just say it honestly, then we could have a debate about values, why you should care, et cetera, et cetera. You know? um, but what often happens is that people don't want to confess that. So instead, they pretend that their objections are actually about the facts. Or it becomes a, uh, a kind of a virtue signaling amongst the people that they're politically affiliated with. And so they say, well, I don't believe it because that's what all my friends uh, want me to think. So you really have to get down to the level of figuring out, do they actually not believe it, right? Uh, the denial and delusion can be you know, kind of closely interlinked. I mean, at what level don't they, <coughs> don't they actually believe it? The interesting thing about my encounter with the, with the coal miners, because I'm going back, because I sort of screwed up the first time. I went all that way up to talk to them, but we leafleted to get coal miners to come talk to us, you know, a conversation about climate and coal. But the only, the only coal miners who showed up were ones who already believed in climate change. And that, which was very interesting sociologically, it was interesting for me to learn that there are, uh, you know, the, uh, but of course, right? But then we had a really interesting conversation because, you know, I wanted to know how do you go to work every day knowing this? And you know, what, uh, what, do you talk to your other uh, uh, friends you know, at the coal mine who don't believe in what kind of conversations do you have? But I'm going to go back, and we're going to figure out a way to, you know, to have a conversation with a, a larger group uh, at, with more diversity of, uh, of opinion. So, I can't, I'm, so I'm in the middle of that research right now, and I can't really give you a report from the field other than what I've done so far. 
the, the one other piece of research that I did on, on climate change so far is that my wife and I went to the Maldives to see what climate change looks like. Because one argument that people use is, well, I don't see it. It hasn't really been happening. Well, if you go to the Maldives, you see it, right? You go to the, the average, the, the highest elevation point in the Maldives is eight feet. And you stand on these tiny little islands, and you're vulnerable. I mean, the islands are, uh, are uh, inhabited and tiny, and a good uh, wave would roll right over the top of them. And within 20 or 30 years, they'll be gone. The Maldivians right now are building a bug out island right next to their capital so that when they, their main island gets overwashed, they can move to the next one. I mean, how sad is that? They're building another island. They're also taxing uh, their visitors so through their, gather money through their sovereign wealth fund so that they can purchase a new homeland somewhere else in the world. They're going to have enough money to do this. I mean, that's sad as well. You go there, I mean, that, that was work. I worked with a marine biologist while I was there to, to snorkel and see uh, coral death and you know, talk about the overwash and the, the, the threat to the fresh water supply. You know, before the island is even gone, it's uninhabitable because the overwash uh, contaminates the fresh water. But it was also cultural. You know, I met the Maldivians and spoke to them. And uh, one very poignant conversation I had with a, a fellow who was a crew member on, on the ship that we, uh, uh, the, the boat that we went out snorkeling in, uh, it was a moment when I, I asked him, uh, you know, are, are you taught about climate change in school? And he said, sir, every Maldivian knows about climate change, but the world doesn't care about us. And that was, that was really hard to hear him say. Um, and so, and I, but I wanted to go there. I wanted to see it, not just to see the, the, the effects, but also the effects on the people and be able to report back. Because sometimes in the in science debate, science denial debates, they want to know, well, have you seen this personally? Yeah, I did. By the way, while I was there, I've now been to the other side of the world. And it's not flat. I didn't go, you know, what, one of the nice ways to try to refute flat Earth is go below the equator and you see different stars. And the Maldives are right above the equator. And if I'd never been below the equator before, I probably would have paid and you know, ha had the ship go the extra miles below the equator to see. But I'd, but I'd been uh, below the equator once before and noticed that there were different constellations. So I actually have had that first person experience before. So in our expansion, we deal with climate change, GMOs, nuclear energy, and aquaculture. And a very small percentage of the visitors challenge us on these. I think your question, what evidence would it take for you to change your mind might be a good way for yeah. those open those Carl, conversations. Carl and our director of education is in the back. Um, I think, <laughs> Dave, I, I think we ought to, and I wish Bob were here tonight, because I think that is a, a good. You could have a little uh, paper and a little box. What evidence would it take to, you know, to convince you and have them put it in? And then answer, you know, go, go through. Does that evidence exist? That might work. Other questions or comments? So um, I'm struggling to, to form a question, so I'm hoping you can provide a response based on okay. that statement. Um, but I, I feel like there is more of a um, sort of what has been presented as, uh, you know, there's an us versus them, you know, a scientific yep. attitude versus a not. Yep. And I feel like it is more of a continuum. Okay. Um, and that, uh, you know, 
ideologies and subjectivity are inevitable in, in everything that we pursue as, mm -hmm. as human beings, right? It's part of our, our social makeup, right? And it, so what we choose to study, bias. even if we yeah. choose to study it object, uh, objectively, yeah. that choice was subjective. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's where I'm struggling to form the question in, in that the scientific attitude, and we've, we've discussed in this that um, you know, certain scientists don't have the scientific attitude or, or you know, yeah. hold on to ideological viewpoints, but I have a sense that we all hold on to ideological viewpoints unless, in, yeah. until we're confronted with, uh, with where our ideologies don't uh, match with yeah. the evidence presented to us if it, we're not. It's actually, you said you haven't formulated the question, but it's actually a great question because I think I, I see what you're after here, which is this idea that um, it's not all or nothing. Uh, scientists can have the, sci we, we could have the scientific attitude about some area of inquiry, but, but not another. And also just recognizing the fact that scientists can be sometimes a little blind about things that they really care about if they want to you know, to turn out a certain way. But remember that the scientific attitude is not defined just by the attitude of the individual scientist to judge him or herself. It's, it's judged on the basis of their practices as judged by the whole community. So everybody wants to feel like they have the scientific attitude, but the measure is not whether you say that you do, the measure is whether you express that in your work, which is judged by your colleagues. And I spend an awful lot of time in the book talking about uh, fraud, talking about things that are just short of fraud, talking about all of the uh, problems in science. So I, I, if you think that this is a book that's just uh, um, always complimentary about science, it's not. I talk about the replication crisis. I talk about cold fusion. Uh, I talk about uh, p-hacking. I talk about all of the sorts of ways that are, that, that scientists sort of uh, uh, fudge things or you know, come right up to the line of fudging things and what that reflects about the, the scientific attitude and how it's judged. And my short answer that I'll give you here, though the longer answer's in the book, is that um, the thing that I really respect about science is that even when there's a problem, like say with the replication crisis, they try to deal with it in a rational way, okay? What did they do with the replication crisis? Um, and you remember the, the, the study that came out of the Center of Open Science uh, about this that showed that just a shocking number of studies in psychology were not replicable. Well, what they did is some social scientists that I used to work with at Harvard went and studied that study and found that it was unreplicable. <laughs> now, that is a scientific response, right? But so, so, and you, so you might say, well, so, so who's right? I, I'm, the, the point is, if you've got the scientific attitude, you don't run away from a problem. You don't sweep that problem under the rug because it doesn't fit with your ideology. You say, you know what? Scientists are not sharing data. Or there's a replication crisis. Or scientists always have that statistical significance just a smidge above the 5% line because that's where they need it for, you know, to, to get the study published. And, but there's a scientific response to this. There, you know, there's a way 
as I said, that we keep one another honest, even if they're honest in the first place. That's, that's what I enjoy. But you're, I think you're, you're on to something when you say that it's not all or nothing, because it's not. Because it's not us or them. It's us, right? There, there are moments when uh, all of us don't have the scientific attitude and need to. And this book has made me much more uh, aware of times when I myself might have not uh, been embracing this. I think perhaps the, the idea is to set the scientific attitude as, as being aspirational. Yes. As, as in the, right. this, you know, the, the scientific process right. is always about asking additional questions right. based on what we learn, right? That's so right. The, that search for truth is never going to be achieved, right? We just get closer and closer to it. That's right. Um, it's an ethos. It, it's, right. it's a creed. It's but an I, aspirational ideal that you put into practice through the uh, you know the way the way that uh, that science works, and I think that that critique is is equally applied to both those engaged in the sciences, and those who are not engaged in the scientists or in the, the anti-scientists. Is that yeah. we we all need to uh, achieve or, or strive to achieve the thing we know is not achievable, um, sure. and and get closer and closer to it. I, I think that's right. Yeah, to come back. I would agree with you that you know that if a study comes out of a, of a particular think tank, you know where it's going to be. That's right. But I, I've found when na national advisory committees were very reluctant if they were dealing with the physical sciences, the NOAA Science Advisory Board is one that I was on for many years, uh, to have a social scientist. We, mm. we then finally got a couple. They changed the dynamic. They added different questions that expanded the, the scope of the study. In a good way. We're looking at it, so it had a very right. good effect. For example, one, one for example, we get, we're getting better and better forecasts of uh, hurricanes. But it doesn't matter how good those hurricanes are if in the, that you don't get the information out yeah. to people in ways that they understand and it will cause them to act. So, I think we can't get along without you, you two. Well, maybe not you two, but <laughs> so, social science has a lot has a lot to contribute. I I agree. Jerry has a rule: if you answer ask two questions, you have to buy two books. Oh boy! Sure. I I, I think four. you know from a layman's point of view. Yeah. <laughs> from a layman's point of view, people are scared of when you say science, and yet we use a science attitude every day buying a car we yep. go out and we we check and now there are people that say we're Ford families we've always had Fords we're always going to buy Fords those are the ideologues that's right you're, you're not going to break that uh, mentality but most of us uh, use a scientific attitude every day and and yet we don't think of it as an attitude we have this fear of science yeah. science is physicists it's brainiacs it's Einstein's right. Well, that, that's why they I wanted to use it every day. It. Just don't realize it. That's why I wanted to identify it as an attitude, because often, if you if you hear, not that many years ago, scientists would talk about the fact values distinction and say, you know, well, we've built the bomb. We're not responsible for how politicians use it. You know, we're that's a normative question, and there's a fact value distinction. That values, and then some people use that to then in social studies of science and philosophy of science to criticize the sciences to say, well, you're not objective. You do have values. Of course they do. Of course they do that. But that doesn't mean that science isn't special. It means that they need the right values. 
and one of the values that they need is caring about evidence and being open to, to changing their mind based on new evidence. So, so um, you're right, we, we do use that. I had a test uh, question one time for my students in philosophy of science, because you know, all the examples were from Darwin and Copernicus and you know, Galileo, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to know if they knew how to use it. And so I gave them a problem that I brought from home about um, putting a tape in my VCR and it wouldn't work. And it could be an electrical problem, and it could have been the TV set, and it could have been the VCR, and it could have been this, and it could have been that. And I asked them to diagnose the, 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 by step how they would test to see which one it was. And I had some students say, I hated that question. I had others say, I love that question. And, I, and this was 20 years ago, and as I look back, what I was really testing was whether or not they had the scientific attitude. I thought at the time I was testing some sort of methodology, but it wasn't because there were so many different right answers, right? There, there, were, there were so many different ways to do it, which is why it was such a hard question to grade, because what I really had to understand was, were they thinking like a scientist about it? And there's no science of, you know, TVology, but they were doing science in a way by trying to diagnose what the problem was. Yeah. I told you it was 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, we, we had talked earlier about that piling on more, more evidence isn't the answer. But right. it, it's evidence, it, it depends on how it is constructed and put, incorporated into a story, because people do respond to stories. Just more facts don't do it. It, it, it is, and there are statistical, there's a big argument in philosophy over the correct statistical method by which you evaluate evidence as, as well over uh, something called Bayes' theorem. But uh, th this is an in internal problem in, the, uh, in mathematics and statistics and philosophy of statistics also. Not, it's not just narratives, but even at the quantitative level, right. there are still disputes. So, so yeah. yeah. Uh, we have one more in the back, uh, and I think that'll be the last one. And uh, Francis, remember the rule. You ask two questions, you have to buy a book. <laughs> You, I was, you don't I, have to, but I've got my I was ready. wondering about the scientific attitude, and does it vary depending on the type of science? Because I was thinking about science in regards to finding um, 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 cures for cancer or mm -hmm. um, medications. So I was wondering, yeah. have you found in what you're working on that the attitude may vary depending on whatever the matter's about? It, it, it can. And, and I'm so glad you asked that question because one thing that I wanted to do in the book to kind of sell the idea that the scientific attitude is important and so revolutionary is to talk about a, 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 uh, a topic that underwent a revolution based on the scientific attitude, and I think it's medicine. Because if you look back not that many years ago, you look back, you look at Semmelweis, 1850s, Medicine was not very scientific. It, a lot of it was based on folk wisdom or just trial and error. There, there was not, a, there was not a, a scientific basis for medical practice. And then even when there started to be in Paris and other places, that didn't filter out to the practitioners through, they didn't even have medical societies. They didn't have a way of reprimanding poor physician practices for quite some time. And then the whole scandal with the medical schools that you know, came later through the Flexner Report. I mean, medicine was in bad shape 
for a long, long, long time. And you know, people, I remember uh, um, one of the funny things that I read in doing research for the book is that the, uh, the assassin who shot President Garfield, his defense at trial was that uh, because Garfield died something like three weeks after he'd been shot, was that Garfield didn't die because he was shot, he, was, he died from malpractice because the doctors kept probing the wound with their dirty little fingers, right? So, but, so I use medicine, I've got a whole chapter on medicine in the book to make the argument that medicine was not a science and then it became a science based on the scientific attitude. And my argument later in the book is that the social sciences can do the exact same thing. And the reason is this, that um, one of the arguments against there being a science of human behavior is that you can't do it because we're the subject of study or that it's a subjective area or that it's normative. We care too much, you know? How can you study something where we have a vested interest in the outcome? Well, ask that to a physician. Uh, health is better than sickness and life is better than death, but they somehow manage to have double-blind controlled experiments to figure out what works and what doesn't. I mean, the placebo effect is real. You don't want to pretend that the, uh, that the medicine cures uh, cancer if it doesn't, right? And so physicians care a great deal about their subject, but they also understand now that it has to be a science. They have to use a scientific attitude. Otherwise, they're not actually helping their patients at all. That attitude could save the social sciences. If we ever really figured out that you can't make good policy on immigration, guns, housing, any of it, without good, solid scientific study, uh, I think we'll, we'll do a lot better. But right now, I do think we're in the dark ages of social science, which is not to say that all social science is bad. I work with some of the greatest social scientists in the world, great respect for them. But there's also a lot of bad social science out there. Lee, thank you very much for a very interesting, important evening. We appreciate it very much. Thanks to you. Thank you. Our next lecture is October 16th, and we're going to have a Hollywood producer, friend of Kim Thompson's, uh, David Kelly. We're going to talk about aquaculture. So we hope we'll see you on October 16th. Thank you. That was excellent. Thank you.